Welcome, everybody, to Current Events with Max and Colborn. My name is Max Cohen. I will be one of your hosts for Current Events today, and joining me, as he does always, is my trusty co-host and the founder of the Museum of Crypto Art. That would be Colborn Bell. Colborn, welcome back to the show. How are you doing? What's up? Oh, I'm doing super well, Max. How are you? Uh, I'm wonderful. Thanks. I, uh, I always look forward to these podcasts with you. We get to talk about and untangle all the stuff that kind of happened in crypto art over the last week or crypto or nfts which i should say is kind of the point of this podcast we talk about whatever happened the last week in crypto art crypto nfts blockchain at large we are going to throw some topics at each other answer completely off the cuff so why don't we just uh get right into it huh goldborn yes sir my first current event of the week um it feels like forever ago even though this whole thing kind of went down i think like three or four days ago but um there was a real furor within crypto art um, about an artist that I had never heard of um, named Lila Jane, um, who I was hoping we'd get here. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's the place to start just because it touches on so much, um, so much interest us. And also like we've been kind of talking about AI consistently throughout the last bunch of episodes of uh, Mocha live. And this is kind of a great proving ground for a lot of these like theorems that I think we've been talking about, right? How does the public feel about AI in this moment? Well, the public can posture themselves any way they want. But in the case of Lila Jane, this artist put out an oil painting that I believe was inspired by an old Renaissance painting of Venus being born. Um, that would be the Roman goddess Venus, a not the planet. Digital oil painting. A digital oil painting, yes. And it was very well textured. It was very aesthetically beautiful. It was very wispy and ethereal. And posited this as an oil painting and went so far as to include uh, many different um, tweets in a thread detailing their process. The issue arose when a group of artists began to theorize that this artist, Lila Jane, had actually used uh, AI in um, the work and had not disclosed the use of AI in the work, which led to a whole uproar, led to, led to a lot of, honestly, just um, outright bullying um, of this artist who I feel like it wasn't that... Uh, <laughs> egregious of a misstep but anyways it does seem in hindsight because this artist has uh, released an apology since and deleted that uh, original piece and tweet probably for obvious reasons um, is that there was mid-journey prompting um, being used within this whole um, saga so it turns out that the detractors were at least in principle correct so there's a lot of interesting questions here right obviously i feel like we've seen very quickly and powerfully how the crypto art public feels about AI, but the more pertinent question to me and the one I have for you to start us off is do artists who use AI have a responsibility to disclose that in their process? And then on a larger level, do artists have a responsibility to disclose their process at all? Uh, whoa. It's, it's for me, that's like a very, it's a, it's a very commercial consideration, right? I don't personally care how anybody makes art, but once you begin to sell it and assign value and people, the, the big problem here was for sure the obvious collusion that was happening on the back end by others around her to lift up and promote this piece. And 
you know, the attention. Yeah. Can, can you talk a, a little bit about that? Uh, I, I missed that in my initial kind of like going over everything. Yeah, look, you know, this is kind of where uh, the space moves in the shadows, right? You want to see uh, the people who are associated, you know, with this young woman jump into the bidding history. And I don't want to get like too personal, in, but it seems that she is in a relationship with another prominent artist in the space. I'm sure all of these artists are in a group. I'm sure somebody said like, hey, can you know, we help out this person and then everybody jumped in. Um, you know, a lot of big names, a lot of people hyping, influencer led both on the artist side on the collector side, and it angered a lot of people perhaps rightfully, perhaps not, who really cares what these people do with their money. But it, it at a time when dollars are incredibly scarce, it felt exceptionally inorganic. It felt fake. And I think how it was orchestrated mirrored uh, the way the piece was composed in a way that kind of struck a longer because people, of course, are creating with AI all their time. It was the way in which she presented kind of the the quote unquote process and pencil sketches and color palette and then just jump to the final piece, which was suspicious. And then it was the way that, you know, the piece was presented and all these people seemingly in her inner circle jumped in maybe looking to attract you know outside capital or bait somebody into this i don't know why people i mean i do know why people collude in this way but the fact of the matter is is that it is so transparent uh if you know what you are looking for and i can't imagine this is anything different than you know the contemporary and traditional art world these these things move in pockets but i just you know i do kind of and always hoped and always strive that we could just break free from this you know i i think this is a really interesting um situation to come at from two angles obviously we have the public's reaction to finding out that ai was being used and not disclosed which i want to get to in a moment but i think what's even more illuminating to me is that the artist and the people around the artist chose not to reveal that information up front obviously there are so many talented mm -hmm. artists yeah yeah please there was, a, I mean, there was a lot of doubling down. There was a lot of uh, dismissal. There's this immediate, we have no room for nuance in this space. Everybody just says like bullying, 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 you know, don't be a bully. Um, mm -hmm. And that really goes to like negate any valid criticism. Of course, artists use, you know, references and models but in this day and age, you know, the divide between what is a reference and what is a model and what is just kind of lifted is razor thin. And, you know, and I know from talking to other AI artists that, you know, obviously there's a lot of artistry that goes into just creating an output that goes into texturing an output. I remember talking to Curran 4D and, you know, he would use these images that he would then use software to, you know, give um, deeper texture to appear more like, uh, you know, a Gothic oil painting, et cetera. But again, like the question for me centers around an artist like Corinne Ford, the example, for example, who is very upfront, like this is AI artwork. It's about playing with the AI. I think it's just so interesting that there was a seeming understanding that this work, 
the one in question by Lila James would be less valuable if the reality of its AI composition were exposed. And so there was a seemingly concerted or if not concerted, then at least deliberate intent to downplay that. And that I think is really illuminating about where we are with AI art right now in that like everyone can have their very egalitarian ideas about it, but there is this sense that if you use AI in your work, it will be less valuable or should be less valuable than if it were entirely, say, hand-painted or digitally um, handcrafted. Again, you know, what does it mean to prompt something and then, you know, overpaint on top of that prompt versus just prompting it? You know, is that mm -hmm. really what we want to begin to call art? Or can, you know, th that's the thing, is it, it, it just, I don't, I don't know really what that extra effort is we we're moving again into a place where you know constant visual stimulus generated from any wild thought imagination um and you know on, we have people who have dedicated years of their lives to mastering certain tools be it oil painting be it you know photoshop illustrator whatever be it, be it ai yeah yeah or even be it ai at this point it's you know, the <laughs> the world is changing so fast under everybody's feet and it you begin to ask, you know, what does it really mean to be exceptional at these programs when, mm. you know, something automated in the future can be just as good, if not better, and then somebody can be just as good, if not better, so quickly. Well, yeah, totally. And I, and I think that this goes back to something that we touched on with Julian Brangold and Frenetic Void two weeks ago that we touched on with Linda Dunya last week, that aesthetics are passe. Yeah. This actual image that Lila James had created was beautiful. It was like classically gorgeous. Um, yeah. I mean, if you prescribe to this, what is it like this, you know, uh, Raphael version of this nude woman in the beach? Yeah. I mean, it, inspired by like the Venuses of Botticelli fame, like it, it was, yeah, very beautiful. And the textures were incredibly deep and interesting. Like I, the piece itself is brilliant, but again, that doesn't matter anymore. Um, and this to me demonstrates that that doesn't matter anymore, that the actual confines of the frame itself were so much less important to pretty much everyone who had an opinion on this, including myself, than the, the kind of, compositional tools that were used and how they were elucidated to the public. And it yeah. just, it feels like we've reached that moment fully in the discourse. Yeah. You know, like I, we always have to give room for young people to experiment and express themselves. And there's nothing for whatever it was, a one E sale. Now the piece becomes iconic for, <laughs> for yeah. the, you know, the, the wrong reason. And it's probably valuable mm -hmm. because of that. And then it goes into, you know, is it all just marketing and collusion and behind the scenes, you know? And I think that is part of the larger problem that people are, are feeling and expressing online is that it's lost its authenticity. It's lost its organic nature. It's lost expression for the sake of expression. If you want to move anything, you know, almost de facto listing it as an NFT implies that it is made for the market and it is made for collectors. And, you know, this is, I 
I see a lot of people saying, you know, they're going to step away. They're so frustrated. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's all antics. Nobody wants to play the game. And I get it. You know, we we poisoned the well, which we're all drinking from, and it's making us all sick. Yeah. Uh, an interesting way of putting that. It just It just feels very indicative of the truth of where we are in this moment. I think that we can probably distract ourselves because of various price increases in various projects or cryptocurrencies because of good news coming out of like the economic side of crypto that things are like on the upswing. But for so many artists, when we talked about this weeks ago, like still so quick to rage because the times have not gotten any easier for pretty much anyone making art here. The market for that has not, improve the rising tide has not lifted all boats and yeah i mean i think it, you you hit the nail on the head when you talked about kind of this influencer cabal and i'm not assigning any malicious intent to them necessarily although you should certainly feel free to do so i think that there is certainly a reading of the situation that implies malicious intent i don't think it's i don't think it's malicious i think it's just you know they want to give somebody a moment and you know i think artists I, I think artists do that all the time. You know, they, they work together, they work in groups. Nobody really gets anywhere unless they're part of, of some group. And, you know, this group wanted to give this young woman her moment mm. because she was proud of the piece and they were proud of her for, for making the piece. And it looked like a significant stylistic, not, not a stylistic jump, but a um, it looks like an incredible jump for her uh aesthetically stylistically in in the process and i get wanting to kind of support and uplift and call attention to that there's a lot of bitterness out there it's it's a tough environment for sure sure but it, you know it goes back to something matt kane kept saying during his um contractual obligations performance which is like is this a revolution or is it not um right and i think that especially when I first came into this space, all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, not to say that I'm not bright-eyed and bushy-tailed now, but there was so much, um, I was kind of being fed all the ideals. I was kind of seeing all the ideals of crypto art without necessarily understanding uh, the nitty-gritty of the reality. Yeah. And like all of this talk about egalitarianism and equal opportunity and you know ge geographically agnostic um, marketing abilities, like, well, when we have a situation like this, where, you know, this some powerful or influential or market moving group is able to just anoint a new savior, so to speak, that just, it's the same tactics that have been used forever, right? It's the, you know, power choosing to deploy that power selectively. And then this person is now a household name as demonstrated by the fact that we're talking about her, which I think we have to, and I want to, but Think of all the other artists who are playing within the rules, so to speak, who don't have these connections. Like, you know, th this, this is the problem of, you know, when web <laughs> being open, Web3 opened its doors to people who had built, you know, legacy in Web2 and wanted to play. Right. Artists in this day and age are influencers. You know, if you are taking them, a lot of these, you know, we're photographers, a, a, a lot of these people that go and took the best, most beautiful photos built up a tremendous following on Instagram, because really, that's what it was for, you know, and they, they know that influence, and they understand that, and they take those ideals of web two, and they port them into web three. So we get this like fucked up, messy hybrid 
of how things are, you know, of, of almost double talk of speaking about the ideals, but only knowing one thing and being wired in a certain way and acting that way. And I think a lot of people, you know, I, <laughs> I, I was, I was of course the most idealistic person and I could not understand why the rubber was not hitting the road, right? Why everybody wasn't buying into this. And, you know, I, I kick myself for recognizing or for not recognizing that most people just aren't capable of making exponential leaps of, of faith in new models and new ways of thinking. Um, and people only know one thing and they, and they resort to that because that's what is safe and that's what has gotten them to where they are. And they tell other people that this is how it's be. So how it should be. So there's also a large part of imprinting and teaching and, you know, replication of, of systems that have worked previously. So it's just impossible. It's just impossible to break free. So, you know, the, I, the, the, the revolution is canceled in my opinion. Uh, can you say more about that? I mean, I think it's, it's self-evident, <laughs> you know, there, it exists, you know, the thing exists, but in the speed of the internet, it has been, you know, bastardized and, and shifted away from its ideals. And what we're left with is an open and accessible market, but it's frankly one that nobody wants to play in anymore. This is why I, I find myself still so continually fascinated by like Matt Cain's contractual obligations performance, because the, 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 the medium, the, like this market is a medium. And in the same way that like Warhol was commenting through his public persona on like his own fame and that at least as far as my understanding of Warhol has become a pretty important part of like understanding his legacy is the fame he got and how he was like utilizing and posturing that and commenting on it. There right. just, for the most part, doesn't seem to be any interest in examining this. I would be so interested to know what it looks like in just terms of like sheer artistic expression. If, you know, these influencer cabals were wary or recognizing of their own influence and were interested in exploring that. I mean, there's a reason you have so many movies that are about making movies and so many books that are about writers, right? There's this desire. I, or I, I think I, I felt a desire to comment on the ridiculousness of one's situation. You know, so many incredible movies from uh, King of Comedy, which is a Scorsese movie to uh, the player, which is a Robert Altman movie, like that comment on the ridiculousness of Hollywood from people who are in it and succeeding in Hollywood. And I don't see people wanting to comment on what's happening in crypto. I mean, the comment may be on Twitter, but w the work itself seems to be so unmarried from the actual positions that these people are in. I mean, look, you know, we are in a very privileged position to be able to sit here and try and parse this in real time. That's true. Uh, it's, it's not, you know, who else is, who else is going to do it right now? It feels kind of like most people are, you know, the artists for the most part are fighting for their lives. The speculators are, are totally washed. They don't care. Um, you know, if people had money in DeFi, they're going back to DeFi, you know, it's, uh, the, the land is barren. And the question is, if, is, is the soil still fertile? Well, I think it is. But again, it's like, how do we communicate in this space? And perhaps that's another issue that's connected to this whole situation is like, how are we actually 
like communicating with each other. Obviously, it's mostly on Twitter, and that does not lead to actual intelligent dialogue. Yes, we have the privilege to have a 30 to 40 minute conversation about this topic. And that's obviously going to allow us some kind of like insight that you're not going to get if you're just like reading about it, reading the thread, commenting on it, reading other people's comments, and then kind of like going in your merry way and coming back in a couple of hours and seeing how it's developed and then maybe lending another, you know, 60 character comment to the thing. Like you can't have intelligent dialogue in that way. It's just, it's not how intelligent dialogue works. You need time to let ideas think. You need to have them challenge. You need to like be sitting with them. You need to be like coming up against, you need to be in a lecture or a discussion, right? Like that's how this information, that's how information it seems to me is best disseminated, at least in terms of like finding insight, finding depth and finding like growth from the idea, as opposed to just like putting forth an idea quickly and then kind of leaving it to, you know, wither on the vine to continue the agricultural um, metaphors. So I don't know. I mean, I, I think like a situation like this deserves more of this intelligent dialogue. This is a fascinating situation from a lot of ways. Yes, you can take the marketing angle. Yes, you can take the influencer angle. You can take the the angle of, you know, our collective feelings towards AI and how artists are reflecting that. You know, I, again, I think this is a really interesting, if unintentional, commentary on how the space views AI right now. In the simple fact that this artist did not want to reveal her use of mid-journey prompting within this piece. Why is that not something that can be like, is an addition um, or to the underlying artistry? Why is it something that deserves to be, or that they felt deserved to be diminished, if not, you know, vanished altogether? Like that's just, that feels really rich and ripe, especially as so many artists are using AI to create. Doesn't it feel helpful to want to like interrogate that? Because it, no, I mean, you know, it just, it just it goes back to like the the people who have been creating digital oil paints you know i don't know where people probably illustrator maybe i think they make most of this this stuff in illustrator you know spending the years the hours 10,000 hours to master this thing and then you know suddenly all of that time and that mastery gets reduced to almost nothing right to somebody just smashing two sentences on a keyboard and you know a hundred images are generated in that style Mm. and i think that's where that's where it begins to hurt feelings it feels i would imagine like time wasted or time lost and again the the visual aspect of artistry is moving away from you know, the ability to kind of perceive and create into something that is much more technical. And I think that is scary for a lot of people who have this skill of being able to imagine something and then begin to construct it to a place where, you know, millions of people have access to mid-journey and prompting and the instantaneous ability to do this. Whereas once it was like, treasured and favored and desirable and you could probably get a design job or some sort of marketing job on the side to kind of you know support this skill set well that is all being washed so it, it it feels i imagine very scary and existential to people who dedicated or just who just are this person so i, I read a lot of like modern and postmodern literature um I'm reading a book now called Foucault's Pendulum by Umberto Eco. Um, and it does something 
this book that I see in a lot of like, especially longer postmodern literature, at least like American postmodern literature, although Umberto Eco is Italian from like the late 1900s, which I think is worth talking about. So just bear with me for a second in that, you know, these are 600, 500, 1000 page books. And the first 100 to 150 pages might have nothing to do with what you actually end up talking about throughout most of the book, right? You end up being in, introduced to a world or to characters who are just basically going to go away because they're either setting up something thematically or conceptually or uh, narratively, but then they're kind of like their job is done. They go on. The book becomes what it's going to be about. Um, I've seen this in Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas Pynchon. I've seen it in Underworld by Don DeLillo. Like just, I promise, take, take my word for it. This is a real thing. I love that. I think it's so fascinating to be introduced to a world and then have it almost be like bait and switched where you're still in that world, but you're now playing by a different set of rules for a different story. And I think it's really interesting. I always give books. I always want to give books 100 to 200 pages before I decide if I like it or not, because I want to see where it's going to go. So how does that apply to this situation? These conversations are the kinds of things that you can only really have, like these AI-based conversations. Like I almost feel like Crypto art itself is this bait and switchy thing where we thought we were talking about NFTs, where we thought we were talking about provenance, but maybe this is all just the lead up to us being able to have an idea or start to form ideas over what AI and AI outputs and AI expression is going to do to the culture and mass. I'm fairly confident that most people in most industries are not really having this conversation, maybe at an economic level in terms of like uh, replacing workers. But in terms of like the expression, you know, people are talking about protections, right? That was the big thing from the, the Hollywood writer strike was like, what are these protections for actors when AI models are able to reproduce faces, lines, you know, body mannerisms, et cetera. This conversation, right? These kinds of conversations about the death of aesthetics, about the um, desire to diminish one's own facets of an artistry for the sake of appearing to be more classical than one is the pain that comes from like you said watching decades ten thousand hours of one's training kind of mm. being thrown out the window because you can recreate something identically aesthetically pleasing with zero technical know-how mm-hmm. it just feels like maybe these are the conversations we were always meant to have and the formation of crypto art in general was just the introduction to this larger conversation. And now mm-hmm. we're sitting in this artistic ecosystem where AI is obviously having such an outsized effect on our cultural dialogue every day. It always seems to be the most interesting thing that's going on. Mm-hmm. And I just can't, I can't get rid of this feeling that this is what crypto art was ultimately always leading up to, was a, <laughs> a, a hotbed for people to be aware of the effects of this technology in a really nitty gritty, personal, emotional level. And being able to have those discussions positively or negatively. Look, AI plus blockchain is the future of everything, right? It's abundance plus ownership. So, you know, how are machines going to be speaking and rewarding one another in these ecosystems? They're not going to be sending wires to each other, right? They're going to be transacting in digital forms of currency to say like, you did a good job. Thank you for this little bit of data that you gave me. And once it's, you know, they say data is the new oil, but the way in which these machines and these systems are creating, generating, processing data, packing, packaging it on blockchain, and then selling it to each other 
is the ecosystem of the future, right? So, so we exist in this smallest snippet of it in which, of course, culture is going to be the same. It's going to be broken down to its smallest unit, which could be a, you know, a, a token, which is a token, uh, analogous to a share. This represents some part of this creator. And this is what our, you know, like post-capitalism at its extreme form will be in which the, the content of every AI and the data output will be packaged and sold and the content of every human will be packaged and sold. And all of this will be like free flowing in a, in a market of information and culture and data. And, you know, all of, all of these, all of these things, ideally, you know, we want people to capture. We don't want to keep giving it away to, you know, Google meta, you know, these great aggregators of human and technological output. And to take that one step further, I want us to be having these conversations because they impact us personally, instead of these conversations being had at a very high abstract level by you know, CEOs and researchers who might be uh, a couple actual um, degrees of separation removed from seeing the effect of these technologies on people's real lives, on their like emotional well-being, on their histories. So I uh, just wanted to echo that sentiment. We have kind of like these these megalomaniac tech titans, right? Elon Musk wants to take us to Mars, human colony on Mars. And of course, Jeff Bezos comes out this week and says he wants a trillion humans living in these space cylinders in which, you know, everybody will be afforded a vacation to Earth. Hard pass. I, I mean, like, obviously, like, hard pass. What, you know, that's, it, it gets to be, just very uh, wally, but they have to continue to sell, you know, these extremist visions of humanity. And, and these are almost like extrapolations of the current framework and how you pull humanity along on this, like this, <laughs> like your own deterministic zeitgeist of all this, capital that you're trying to deploy and achieve and you know the mining of asteroids it's like do we really need all this shit we've been doing this for uh about a year now and this is the first time deterministic zeitgeist has uh appeared in the actual <laughs> dialectic so we made it everybody yeah finally um do you want to throw another final thought out of this i would there's just one more current event that i think is worth talking no about. i mean it's it's evergreen i'm sure we'll be yeah. back good in the future yeah. Again, if you know and listen to this podcast, you know that our conversations become only more and more about AI over time. So um, we are both like we're welcome, like you're welcome, but also we apologize. Uh, <laughs> so the next current event is a confluence of a couple, and that is that hack season is back um, for better and for worse, probably for worse. But, you know, read how into it how you will. There was earlier this week a hack involving uh, Ledger. Um, and I believe like the DAP integration that they, uh, I'm, this is where my, my technical know-how goes kind of out the window pretty quickly, but, um, something with Ledger's smart contract integration with various DAPs and connectivity sites where people were getting their wallets drained. There was a hack later, NFT trader was hacked and, uh, people lost a lot of their assets. There was a piece from, I believe 2022, uh, from the non NFT conference in Mexico city, um, 
that was a collaboration between Xcopy, Neurocolor, and Mohara. Uh, and a third web contract was exploited, and those pieces were kind of moved out of even very secure wallets and mass, which all is to say that after what seemed like a pretty, you know, pleasant amount of time without like a major hack, we had kind of three. Um, Bro, you didn't even mention Flamingo now, did you? Uh, enlighten me. People got people got wrecked on Flamingo Dow. Flamingo Dow's Twitter was hacked, and mm. they said they're you know they had like twenty four hours of announcements saying that you know there's only forty percent of the seats remaining to be in the sub Flamingo Dow. Coming, I you know I think Rucker Vandertas got affected by that. Uh, Pistol Pete got affected by that. So that gives us. That gives us four essentially hacks within a week, which even at the height of a bull market feels aggressive, um, especially ones that are relatively high profile, affecting relatively high profile platforms and companies and artists. And this to me is very interesting. It's also very interesting to me. I want to just invoke something that Artie Hans said on Twitter uh, on December 16th. He said, hackers leave the illiquid art, just saying. And <laughs> so true. I thought that was kind of funny just to see this kind of come back around in terms of what actually gets affected in these hacks. And it's, it is often currency. It's often super liquid assets that can be, you know, put thrown back into the market pretty quickly. You know, I was, I lost my non NFT piece in this hack, but, uh, and I maybe don't have the safest wallet politics, but you know, people aren't stealing the, uh, you know, additioned like Aaron B's art blocks projects. They have, they're, I have, you know, they're not stealing the, um, the beautiful AI creations that crypto Natrix has created that I have like, it's just very interesting to see that these hacks happen and then what the hackers are looking for in terms of, you know, reward for their efforts. Like they need to sell into a bid immediately. I mean, mm -hmm. also hilarious that uh, the ledger hacker, you know, walks, I don't know, 350 K $500,000 transferred it all to tether and then tether locked there. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I, I, maybe that's not that funny. A lot of sound um, and fury signifying nothing. Yeah, I don't know, man. It's 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 just it's just, you know. I I always thought that about the museum's permanent collection as well. You know, if if somebody somehow gained access to, like, who who could possibly then go, and <laughs> you know, that's the beauty of transparency, right? You somebody steals a painting from what was it, the Sophia Gardner Museum in Boston? Oh, the Isabella Stewart Gardner uh, Museum. The, yeah. Yes, the Isabel Stewart. Yes. Uh, and, you know, that would move on the black market because you can hang that in your house. It doesn't really matter, you know, which oligarch or, or you know, corrupt titan of industry. Like, that's that's it's probably cool. even a, yeah, it's probably even a mark of, a, I don't know, one's patronage. You're like, yeah, I, I don't know. I it's have <laughs> Christ in the Sea of Galilee by Rembrandt. You may remember right. it from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Uh, right. You could never show it, but you could, you know, you could go sit in whatever room you have in your mansion hidden away bunker um and you could think about what that all means you, you obviously couldn't do that with the museum's permanent collection right that's just now in your wallet and it's marked as you know not your asset and that was always obviously attractive to me and also like what okay let's say let's say in this hypothetical situation like people gain access to the permanent collection well we're losing our crypto punk we might lose like the Dimitri Cherniak one of one we have. You could steal the X copy, but it ain't got no metadata. So I don't know what you're going to do with this. <laughs> but I mean, like who's, who's, who's going to buy it? You know, somebody public is going to buy it. 
probably unbeknownst to them, or they're just going to sell it into a bot. And then we're going to be like, look, this was obviously taken. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> you know, you have this piece that was stolen. Mm-hmm. And then and then it, it kind of becomes a, a moral issue. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to think about like non-fungibility in this sense being a protective mechanism. Like I, you know, I, one of these hackers, I'm not sure which one, they stole like 38 board apes or so. And I believe the people who like either got their board apes back or that the public knew had lost their board apes were the ones that were like had all the trippy skins and the crowns and whatever the like expensive attributes were, which makes them inherently more unique than all the floors that it's going to be much harder to recover or that people are not going to pay as much attention to because it doesn't have that same air of like being super unique and thus attached to an individual, an institution, a collection, et cetera. Um, yeah, it's just, it's interesting to think like basically outside of like art blocks projects, like I love chromie squiggles, but if I sat you in a room and I showed you a picture of a chromie squiggle for, you know, 35 seconds and then, you know, showed you a 50 chromie squiggle outputs and then asked you to decide like, okay, what did you, is the one that you saw in this collection? You probably would say no because of the nature of these outputs, um, the nature of these large collections, one of one art is, uh, is the way one of one and like not very high worth art is the safest asset you can have. Yeah. Yeah. Any other thoughts from like these hacks, like uh, any other angles that maybe I, I I'm missing? Cause like, mm, you, you know, are we just, back baby? If <laughs> Just, uh, you know, don't, don't, you know, play shitty games and get shitty prizes. Right. You, you always need to have some sort of an intention. You can't be chasing every little thing. You know, these, these things are incredibly, incredibly sophisticated. Yeah. And I, and I want to just mention two things. First of all, I'm bringing back shame from our foundational text of crypto art discussion, shame on MetaMask for just creating a product that so is so difficult and unwieldy to use and a refusal to update it so that people can maybe avoid some of these hacks in the future. It does feel like in some level it's up to the wallets. I know that there's some like, like the ledger exploit is not necessarily a MetaMask issue, but. Yeah. But if you sign, if you sign a transaction, there's nothing you can do. That's it's like the purpose of the wallet. Well, and this, this leads to one other point that I, I do think it's important to at least just touch on briefly, which is if you're not on Twitter, you're fucked completely, not just in the cultural zeitgeist, but like, if you don't know that these things are happening, these hacks, these exploits are happening, right? When the ledger hack was going on, you couldn't connect your wallet to basically any site for yeah. like four hours or so. If that was you a real were, black swan. Yeah, it was crazy. And if you weren't in a, a group chat with people who knew what was going on, knew what was going on, if you weren't on Twitter seeing what was going on, you weren't following the right people who would be plugged in and have the right advice. You're in a way worse position than somebody who's like connected, sees what's happening, knows what's going on immediately because of how information disseminates on social media. And again, it just comes down to just being forced into the Twitter ecosystem where all this conversation happens because of the sheer like communication, um, like the, the bounty of communication that you get and how protective that can be in times. I agree. And I totally disagree because 99% <laughs> of the scams are also proliferated on Twitter. It's mm. where you get this hype FOMO energy that's driving you to go click a link. You think about the ledger exploit, which affected some ridiculous percentage of libraries. And in four hours, that hacker only got $350,000. And the person who exploited, you know, Flamingo Dow's Twitter 
right? They they probably I think made more than that. Mm. So it's really you know driving people through these these information cycles that are addictive, that are you know driving them to make very quick financial decisions where they cannot possibly assess the entirety of the risks. A lot of crypto is about, you know, getting in and saying, fuck it. And most of the time, by the time you've heard it on Twitter, you're too late. So I think probably for 95% of people, the the alpha is really to just keep it, put it on a hard a hard wallet and, and walk away. The problem is, is that the, the serotonin cycles of being engaged, the feeling, the rush is is addictive so you always you know you want to be plugged in yeah and it's so easy to move this money yeah i don't know easy easy come easy go yeah i can't move a goddamn thing um (laughs) there is one thing i wanted to talk with you about and i think you know we have a couple minutes hopefully maybe it's not too late let's rock it come on yeah we have no what is go what is going on with everybody moving to solana Okay. Is, are, this are you, also you, feels you, like a, no. I mean, this also feels like a massive coordinated influencer thing. We got big artists, big names. I'm gonna go buy art on Solana. Everybody's it, how how does this happen, Max? Is there good art on Solana? Why are artists moving there? I get you know. I I personally am a big fan of let's go explore other chains than Ethereum. It's gonna be more exciting. It's gonna be more dynamic. Well, I mean, the answer is first of all, I don't, I know very little about the art on Solana. Um, which is a blind spot of mine, admittedly. But people are going to go where the liquidity is. Um, and artists are going to move to where they can generate sales. That's just the like nitty gritty. That's the underlying theme of all of this. And Solana has a host of DeFi protocols that at this around this time are um, launching like airdrops and incentives for using these platforms. And there's tons of just money being dropped into the Solana ecosystem in the same way that we spoke about the other week, like DeFi summer of 2021 sparked this incredible mad bull rush towards NFTs on Ethereum seems to be the same thing as just happening on Solana where these DeFi platforms are a little bit more mature and um, the blockchain already has what seems to be a pretty devoted user base um, and price go up and people are get, making money on these like meme coins, like bonk and, oh yeah, you should, <laughs> I won't go into the financial details, but my, uh, selling of a bonk airdrop nine months ago has, uh, that cut off. Oh man. If we're talking about <laughs> generational wealth, uh, all I had to do was sit on my thumb and uh, right. Uh, that's what I'm telling you. It's better to do nothing. It's these, better to these do bags nothing. get fumbled. But the thing with Solana is that, like, in my opinion, the infrastructure is there. It's pretty easy to use. The um, wallets are way cleaner and easier to move around than MetaMask. The apps are really clean and fresh. Um, the kind of investment opportunities that are available on, like, Jupiter.ag, which is, um, like, a DeFi tool. Like, you can just do things because the gas fees are so low that you can't do otherwise. And so that has, I guess, incentivized all these platforms to release airdrops and um, make people very, very wealthy. And when people get very, very wealthy, they want to parlay that money into other things, which is probably going to be PFPs for the most part on Solana. But where there's money, you know, people who want to make money will follow. Um, so I think it's probably not that much um, 
more complicated than that but like we also see the same thing happening with avalanche to an extent like good apps good um communicative team that runs the blockchain the foundation or whatever it is and low gas fees so i mean ethereum we've always talked about like it's way better as like a confirmation layer for things than like a transaction layer, um, especially because the more people use Ethereum, the more things are happening on Ethereum, proportionally, the more exclusive it will become because the gas fees will go up proportionally. And that doesn't seem like a problem that's going to be able to be fixed in the near future. So people are going to go where they can literally transact um, to a point. So I'm not sure it's much more um, complex than that, which is like people smell opportunity. Maybe it is a coordinated influencer effort. I know that you have not been shy in criticizing the Solana ecosystem for being like massively centralized, which it totally is fair criticism. Look, it's already won. You know, I, the the winners of this next cycle are going to be these uh, layer ones that do speak. You mm-hmm. know, Bitcoin, Ethereum have been institutionalized. Um, it's you know, I'll tell you right now, it's not going to be like Ripple, Cardano. It's going to be just looking at the list here. It's going to be Solana, Avalanche, Polkadot, probably Polygon, places where people can go and, and have smart contract features that work for retail, where mm-hmm. it is inexpensive, where it's cheap, where it's fast. It's an incredible experience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's super fast. It's super easy. There's a reason that like I got into Solana when I did and kind of like understood my way around these tools with at least a little bit of like maturity. Yeah. And it's because like they're presented to you, they're they're quick, they're user friendly. We talked about the Apple Store aesthetic with Linda Dunia last week, but like the Apple Store aesthetic has, in terms of efficiency, nothing can beat it. And the Solana yeah. ecosystem is all the way in on the Apple Store aesthetic. Um, I think in this case for better and not for worse. But yeah, it's it's the Solana thing is is interesting. It's going to be interesting to watch how it develops. I don't know if like the big art platform on Solana is exchange.art. I don't know if they're going to be able to a capture any real smattering of the Ethereum market, or if they're going to be able to do a better job at running an art focused marketplace and others on Ethereum. Um, But yeah, it's it's an interesting conversation. It is for sure. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. And uh, yeah, maybe next time I'll bring up Solana. I, I didn't want to, you know, because I don't want to, I don't want to. I mean, I just, I just, I just saw a lot of it and I, and I thought it was interesting timing, but you know, perhaps it is just entirely organic. Again, you know, I read this great thing from Melton Demir's. It's not narrative driving price. It's price driving narrative. Of course. Right. So if people see that, you know, I don't know what Solana did, but I'm seeing it with Avalanche, you know, in, in October, it was $9 for an AVEX. Now it's like $42, mm-hmm. you know? So when the interest for X, when the money is abundant, people, people rush in. And I really think this is, yeah. And I really think this is just the start of the cycle for all of those coins to see real retail activity. And I think the larger names and players move to, to institutional activity. Well, let's end with uh, the question I'm going to ask you every week. Are we back? Um, no. But we we're we're getting closer. We're getting closer. Oh, uh, you're, you're starting to I, wobble. I think no, we're like, look, no, I no, think we're not I back. think <laughs> I think give it a month. I think we're gonna see uh, a major haircut across the market. I think this market has run its course. I think people are gonna take profits at the end of December. You know, hedge funds are gonna fill out their their Q4 returns. 
Uh, I think probably Bitcoin dumps to 32, 35. We'll get ETF approval. That'll be a single day bump. We've got the <laughs> happening, I think, in March and April. And then we've got like six to nine months of all of these ETFs eating every single Bitcoin. Um, and then it gets really scarce. And then the price really starts to run. That's going to flow downwards. Uh, you know, I expect kind of like a maybe two and a half, three X from Bitcoin and, and maybe kind of like a 10 X in this next bull market for some of those names that I mentioned. That was so much more comprehensive of an answer than I was expecting. <laughs> so, and then, you know, and then if anybody buys art, I don't know, it happened before. Will it happen again? Depends on the art. Mm. Yeah. So start producing as many outputs with AI as possible and to make sure that you do not tell anyone what your process was. Amen, brother. As a wise man once told me, you can keep your mouth shut and be thought a fool, or you can open it and leave no doubt, as I have been doing consistently on this podcast for the last year. Um, Colborn, this is fun. Thanks for uh, sitting with me, and uh, especially for a little bit of a longer episode. But I think we got to a lot. I hope you all enjoyed your time with us on the Current Events Podcast. If you did enjoy your time, please give us a like, a follow, a subscribe, a five-star review on whatever your preferred podcast platform of choice you can collect this podcast on zora.co by searching mocha live uh, we might also be in the featured section or you can find the links um, on our own twitter at museum of crypto please give our Substack a follow as well if you like writing that's museum of crypto.substack.com my name is max cohen that's colborn bell we've had a really good time together and we've had a really good time with you so please join us again real soon any last words, Colborn? Cheers, y'all. Cheers, no, y'all. All right, bye-bye, everyone. Bye now. This has been another episode of Current Events with Max and Colborn. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Colborn, as always, for being my co-host. Our intro music was composed by Julian Brangold, so a big thank you to him. And once again, thank you to all of you for being with us. We'll be back soon with another episode of Current Events. So long.